Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. The NWF Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Hunt to Eat, an inclusive hunting apparel company with a focus on community, real food, and conservation. Check out Hunt to Eat's NWF line, wild game recipes, and hunting and fishing designs at hunttoeat.com. And enter the code WILDLIFE10 to get 10% off your order. Welcome to the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Youngdike, with my co-host, Aaron Kindle. And we have a very special guest today. Author Christine Peterson is joining us. And I'm going to let Aaron tell you exactly why she's so special and why we're so excited to have her on the NWF Outdoors Podcast. Thanks, Drew, and I am happy to have Christine on. Christine and I are both born and raised in Wyoming, so yet another Wyoming guest. We've had quite a few lately, so we're happy about that. Uh, but Chris, let's tell you a little bit about Christine. She's born and raised in Wyoming. Like I said, she started working for newspapers as an intern in college and then has spent over a decade covering outdoors, uh, outdoors issues, the Casper Star Tribune, Wyoming's largest uh, statewide paper. And then a couple of years ago, she left to become a freelancer. She's now a contributing writer for Outdoor Life, uh, writes for National Geographic Animals, Trout Magazine, Nature Conservancy's Cool Green Science Blog, High Country News, and multiple other things. And you can find her on Instagram at, uh, at she.will.rome. Great, great handle there, Christine. Um, and uh, how are you doing today, Christine? Welcome. I'm great. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, we've gotten to know Christine a little bit as well through the uh, Outdoor Writers Association of America. Drew is a Drew's quite active there, and I've I've had the pleasure of uh, spending some time there. And Christine, you're 
I think the vice president now, aren't you? I am. Yeah. The, um, I was on the board for three years and then joined as second vice president last year and moving through the leadership chain. And, um, it's the country's oldest outdoor communicating trade group. So we're 94 years old now. Um, and just support outdoor communicators of all kinds, public relations, um, writers like myself and, and photographers and videographers and podcasters and illustrators, everybody. If you work in the outdoor communicating world. Awesome. And, and I just have to add that, you know, I've been a member of uh, the Outdoor Writers Association of America for a few years now, and you can't go to a conference without Christine making an immediate mm-hmm. impact. She's everywhere. Um, she's, she's making everything happen, both behind the scenes and uh, in front. So we've gotten to know her pretty well uh, through that medium. But most of all, where you really see her is just dominating the outdoor, me- you know, the the awards and craft session when we all kind of get together and, and give our peers uh, awards for the excellence of their work. She just kind of racks them up, right? Like you're just hoping for maybe a second or third place if you're in her category. Yeah, that's a super stretch, but, um, but thank you, Drew. <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate that. That's some nice accolades. Uh, yeah. Overdone a bit, but thank you. Well, Christine, what we do at the beginning of these is we all talk just a quick moment about what we've been up to outside lately just to kick it off. So why don't you tell us what your last couple of weeks looked like, hopefully with some time outside? Yeah, for sure. Um, I I guess two weeks ago now, I spent a week in Alaska on a story for outdoor life, um, floating and fishing a river called Lake Creek which headwaters in Denali National Park um, and floats down, flows down and has five strains of salmon in it and more rainbow trout than one can imagine catching in any period of time. Some beautiful grayling and camped on rivers and saw bears fishing and osprey and eagles. And that was pretty awesome. And came home and last weekend was the archery elk opener. So spent the weekend in the mountains and my husband and his buddy, um, my husband drew the tag and so he was they were hunting and Miriam, my four year old, and our labs were went for a hike and I have to just to brag for a second about the little one. Um we wanted to go to a on a hike to a place called Laramie Peak and I knew it was gonna be kinda long, but I hadn't done it in a lot of years and I couldn't remember and we got to the trailhead and it said four point two miles and I thought Eight miles is a stretch for a four-year-old, especially since I don't plan on carrying her, but it'll, but it'll be fine. We'll just see how it goes. And we're doing really well. And we got to like three and a half miles and I thought, awesome, we're almost there. Turns out the trail is actually five and a half miles and 3,000 feet elevation gain. And that little human made it. And she made it most of the way back down also. So anyway, four-year-olds can hike nine miles, I learned last weekend. Um, so it was great. It was in the high eighties and came home and then it dropped to the twenties and snowed a bunch. What about you, Drew? What, what's, what's your, uh, last week or two look like? For me, it's been more about what my next week entails, which is heading up to our family's, uh, cottage up in the upper peninsula to chase Northern Pike with my fly rod. Um, and so recently I've been, uh, furiously tying flies to replace the ones that I've lost over the summer. But this weekend, uh, it was actually uh, my wife's birthday, and we got out for a paddle on the Huron River with our kayaks the first time in a while, and that was a lot of fun. I actually didn't bring my, my fishing rod at all, so 
I was able to just kind of appreciate uh, the water and the, the currents and just enjoy relaxing time on the river. Nice. And our listeners know, because I've said it a couple of times, I've been spending some time learning muzzleloader this year. My 15-year-old son has a muzzleloader elk tag that starts on Saturday. And so we've had to shoot a lot of rounds. It's a learning process. Open sites, you know, you get past 50 yards. It's it's pretty interesting. So we've been to the range three times in the last couple of weeks. And then on uh, last week, National Wildlife Federation gave us Friday off for the for the long weekend as well. And so we left Thursday night and did a little scouting. Our, our hunting spot's only about 45 minutes from home here. And immediately we ran into a big group of cows, which was awesome. We, uh, My son just loved watching them. He didn't want to leave. There was a bunch of calves with them. They were suckling and eating aspens. And it was really fun to see those. And uh, we have a good idea of where to look. He's got a cow tag. So we'll see. This, this weekend we'll be heading out and... Uh, that's taken up quite a bit of our time messing with that clunky muzzleloader. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're ready though. So uh, let's kick in Christine to some of this discussion. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, where you, where you grew up, but, but tell us how you got into kind of a hunting, fishing, conservation lifestyle. So I, um, I grew up doing, I grew up in the outdoors and like most people do in Wyoming, Aaron, I'm sure you did. And, and, um, but in all in the non-consumptive world. So my family were not hunters or fishermen, um, but we camped and had a, my parents had an old orange VW bus and we piled into that. And I remember sleeping in the hammock strung between the two front seats. So I don't know how old I was then, but short enough to fit between the two front seats in the VW bus. Um, and, and then just mostly wandered Wyoming's mountains. Um, and mountain biked and backpacked as we got older and ran and skied. And then I met my husband in college and he's also from Wyoming, closer to where you're from, Aaron, in the Lander area. And, um, and he did a lot of hunting and fishing. And so I, um, it's always, I, I'm always a little pained to say that I came to hunting and fishing through marriage, but there we are. He, um, introduced me a little bit more to it. And, um, and coming to hunting was a long journey for me. It really was. Um, but I shot my first antelope last year and got my first turkey a couple of years before that and pheasant a few years before that. And so that was my that was my path to hunting and fishing. And now we spend most of our years doing that. I uh, or most of the most of the year doing that. I remember when we first met and had been dating for a couple of years and started to realize what hunting season was. And I, I started adding up the months in my head and thinking, now, wait, we're spending September archery elk hunting and October rifle hunting if we don't get anything in September. And that appears to flow right into this pheasant season that you're talking about. But apparently there are also ducks. And there's this turkey thing in the spring. So we spend half the year hunting. And, and I remember thinking, oh, man, I don't, I don't know about that. And that was probably, I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago now. Um, and now most of the summer is spent going, when's September coming now? When's September rolling around? Should we scout in August? Maybe we should just get up there and look. So it's been a nice, now I've realized the joy of being able to string together hunting seasons and, and sort of what it, what it brings you by just making you go outside and go outside during bad weather and weird conditions and putting you in places that you wouldn't, that aren't trailheads, you wouldn't typically go, but there you are. And, and all the stuff that you get to see when you're there. I actually really appreciate 
adult onset hunters uh, because it, it's interesting because they've gotten there by design rather than by default, you know, and so there's always interesting stories about, you know, what made them kind of get over that hump. And so I think, you know, you married into it. I think that's kind of a cool reason to, to get into it. Obviously, we all do a lot of things for our partners. And um, to me, it seems like you, you, you got some, a gift a little bit from your partner. So it sounds like you, you really kind of embrace that lifestyle and are, are living it fully. So that's pretty cool. For sure. Um, and if I can, just a real quick plug, I actually wrote an essay for the recent issue of Outdoor Life. So I don't know when this airs, but if anyone wants to pick up the fall issue of Outdoor Life has an essay that I wrote about coming to hunting and, and bringing our daughter along. Um, About that, when did you start writing about the outdoors? Was were you already a writer when you came to hunting or was this something that you started writing about the outdoors after you started picking that up? Yeah, I've been a, I've been a writer since I made a newspaper in the fourth grade. Um, so, I mean, I've been, I've been writing and playing around with journalism for my whole life um, and was at, at the Casper Star Tribune. I covered cops and um, courts and city government for them for a couple of years and my husband and I got married. We moved to Alaska to work at a fishing lodge for a summer. And it was on our sort of year-long honeymoon that this outdoor job popped up. So I hadn't written about the outdoors at all, um, honestly, until until then. Um, so we moved back to Wyoming when we were done traveling and started covering the outdoors full-time. And that would have been 2010. And since then, you've, you've covered a lot of conservation issues as as well in addition to outdoors uh issues hunting fishing you know a multitude of publications what are what are some of the most interesting stories that you think that you've covered probably within that time um that is a that's a that's a tough one to think about um if i figure i probably write you know, a couple hundred stories a year. So for 10 years, that's a lot of, a lot of stories to go through. But, um, I do think that a lot of the large carnivore coverage has been really interesting. So getting to cover, um, conflict between humans and grizzly bears, humans and wolves and how those play out on the landscape and, and various tolerances, um, for large carnivores and, and sort of how we got there, why, um, why people are so much less tolerant of wolves, say, than of grizzly bears, um, which also the perk of those is it's led to getting to go on a couple different grizzly bear captures and, and so getting to see bears up close, which has been really neat. And um, spent four days on a wolf capture once and never caught a wolf. But at one point, I think they just felt so bad for me that I got to go in a helicopter after they darted one. We jumped out out of the, we jumped out of the helicopter which sounds dramatic we jumped out of the helicopter the snow was quite deep so it did land on the snow but you had to kind of like fall out and in our like orange jumpsuits and started running through the woods like prison escapees and there were three of us two biologists and myself and we got to the top of the hill and one of the biologists dropped back just because it was pretty hard running and the other guy and I kept going and the trail diverged because there had been two wolves they darted one and the other hadn't been darted and the trail split and there were wolf tracks going two different ways. And he said, you go that way, I'll go this way. And I was like, with my notebook and pen, what am I going to do if I find this wolf that's been darted? 
And so I did run that way and he ran the other way and the wolf ended up not, um, didn't succumb to anesthesia. So it just kept running and we didn't end up finding him. But it was very dramatic there for, um, for a little bit in the mountains. Um, but I do think that those relationships are fascinating. And I've written a lot about chronic wasting disease, which is also, um, sure your listeners are pretty familiar with. And Wyoming has been ground zero for that. Wyoming and Colorado since the you know, early seventies and watching it spread and how it impacts again, how it impacts people. And it's something that's hit. Um, that I've thought about a lot in our family, just because where we Elcut is has a really high prevalency of chronic wasting disease. So then going through that struggle of if you get something and it's positive, do you eat it? Do you get it tested? Do you get it tested, but you don't want the results back because you don't want to know and and all of that, um, all of that conflict. So spend um, spending quite a bit of time thinking about that. But I do think where humans interplay with nature and with wildlife is probably where I find myself most interested. Do you, do you always get your, your meat tested? Uh, we do now. Yeah. Okay. Um, we didn't until, um, our, my daughter's name is Miriam. We didn't until, um, she was born and not, not for any real reason other than I just, I think it was to some degree, a lack of awareness. Um, and then um, I started writing about it more and she was quite young. And so then it was um, now it's I hate to say on my mind because it's a terrible pun given chronic wasting disease <laughs> rots the brain. But um, but now it's something that I certainly think about um, a lot more. And yes, do do get it tested. And I don't I know we couldn't eat it if it was positive. positive. I couldn't. We haven't. No, knock on wood. Yeah, we um, we just got our first we got our first case in the white-tailed deer in Michigan in 2015. Um, so now it's something that's certainly impacting our management uh, here at least. But not long after that, um, Steve Ranella came and did like a talk, uh, and I asked him that question. I asked him about how he handles that, and his answer was funny. He actually said that he does only because he doesn't want to get the question from his family. Did you get this tested as they're eating it? And then have to answer no, and, and that was his reason why he got it tested. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's been. It was that's been a really interesting one to talk to hunters. And Aaron, I'd be curious how you where where you fall on that also. Um, but it is. Um, it's been really interesting to hear how people are willing, the risk people are willing to take with themselves versus the risk that they're willing to expose their families to. And a biologist here, a disease specialist at Wyoming Game and Fish Department, I think said it best to me once that that most hunters, by the time they are old enough to really be thinking about these things and stuff, they think, ah, I've probably poked enough holes in my brain over my life that, you know, what's taking a risk at this? But But it's really different than deciding that you're going to feed your family something that could could potentially and if if a human gets it which again there's been no recorded case of a human getting it and they can't show it in a lab yet crossing over to humans but if that could happen it's a death sentence and not a fun death yeah i think i'm in your same camp uh you know nwf's done a lot of convening the experts and trying to figure out some policy solutions and pushing on you know, APIS and some of the other folks that, that manage this stuff for, for, you know, live testing and a lot of things. And we did a, a summit a couple of years back and I sat around a dinner table with 
a lot of the leading experts in the world on this. And they talked about all the different species jumps that it had had and that they would never feed it to their family without being tested. And that pretty much sealed the deal for me. I said never again. So do you, do you take the head, Christine, or do you pull the, the nodes? Uh, we take the head. And that's what we've been doing. I mean, it's been, there have been four elk, I guess, in the, have been the animals that, because we don't deer hunt typically. So just elk and antelope hunt, and it's um, not an antelope issue. Um, and so then we just, we, yeah, just take the head. A little side take story, your too. No, I mean, either or. I, I'm always nervous about taking the nuds. Like, it, all the, is, am I really going to get them right? Because it's all, you know, bloody and so on. But, an interesting side story is my 15-year-old boy last year got his first big game animal in Wyoming, naturally, because it was a pronghorn. Nice. Um, and he was 14 at the time, and he says to me, because we've talked about CWD, you know, and he says to me, well, why aren't we getting these pronghorn tests? And I said, well, you know, pronghorn are a different species. They're not in the deer family. He's like, yeah, but you've told me it jumps all these species barriers. That seems like one. It would jump. You got to really. <laughs> and he started getting into me about this. And I was like, oh, man, you know, I guess they do roam the same areas. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a good answer for him there, but I thought it was a good critical thinking question <laughs> from him. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe back off on the on the thoughts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come like, on. Oh, We're trying kid, to have a good time. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you, you talked a little too, Christine, what, what are you hunting this year? Your husband got a bow tag. Are you guys going to do more than that? Or what else are you going to be looking at? Um, yeah, so he, um, archery elk hunts mostly. And, and I mean, if he doesn't get one during archery season, I'll, um, do rifle too. And then I have a pronghorn tag. So we'll hunt that in end of October. And then I also have, um, I bring my shotgun along. And so we try to, look for grouse while he's out elk hunting and have a fall turkey tag. Um, so I'll probably look for turkeys too, just see what we run across. But again, with a, um, with an eight and a half year old lab and a one and a half year old lab, that's our buddies that I watch while we're hunting and a four year old daughter, which is basically a circus wandering, <laughs> wandering the forest with a shotgun. I don't know how much luck I'll have, but, um, but grouse and turkeys and then, and then that'll flow right into, pheasant season and um we're pretty excited about pheasant hunting this year so keeping the freezer so, full yeah so my boy always wants to bring a shotgun because we see grouse when we're elk hunting and i'm always like man i can't imagine if you let off a shotgun shot while we're elk hunting i just would not be happy about that so do you, do you have any thoughts on that have you actually done that during rifle season i mean it seems like every elk for a mile would run and, and it wouldn't be a good thing but what do you think yeah. And I have, so I haven't yet. Um, partly because I, um, partly because I actually didn't realize that grouse numbers were as high as they are where, where we are. Um, and partly because this is the first year that Miriam's actually capable enough to really walk around that much with me. But, um, I talked to him quite a bit about that and, and the area where we hunt is a limited, it's a limited quota area. So there's, not as many elk tags and there is a bucket of elk there are so many elk in there and there's a surprising number of people just like recreating around in the area um and i actually hear shotgun blasts with some frequency so there must be other people out there either just shooting um or hunting grouse during archery season and i and it just doesn't seem like they're that i mean obviously if you were sneaking on an elk like if 
if he was calling the one and one was calling back and I was next to him like, oh, grouse and shot one, that probably wouldn't be awesome. Um, but I think just the general, you know, us wandering around and if we see a grouse getting at it, it sounds like, seems like that could be okay, but something that I'm aware of that I don't, I don't want to screw up someone's hunt. Well, my dad used to be an expert at uh, using a wrist rocket and getting grouse oh. in Wyoming when we were kids. I mean, my dad would just just get so many grouse, I couldn't believe it. And I've tried it a few times, and it seems like I see them, they fly on the tree, and I shoot them like five times with a little steel ball, and I hit the branches, and I hit everything but them. <laughs> I kind of gave up pretty quick. Although my dad was shooting sage grouse more in Wyoming. and mm. you know, They don't go up in the trees with all the other stuff, but... Only time I've tried that, I I hit everything but but the the blue grass I was shooting at, so I shut that down. Sounds like me trying to hunt squirrels with my recurve. <laughs> well, and I thought about that maybe I don't I don't archery hunt, but um, but there's not any real reason other than um, that's really just my husband's deal, and someone has to watch Miriam, so he gets dibs on archery elk hunting each year. But I had thought that maybe that would be a fun way to start playing around with a bow is just walking around and if I see something cool I can give it a shot and if I don't that's fine too. Now you mentioned uh Miriam's coming with you now and she's old enough to kind of walk along with you now obviously being able to walk you know 11 miles at 3,000 feet elevation um but you've been bringing her with you you know even when she was younger in her backpack I've just I've seen on your social media for for years it seems like and then you also you also write her letters um, or, or posts about what you did together. Is that something you're going to continue doing, um, you know, as she's older and can remember it herself now? Um, what kind of got you started in that? Um, sure. The I um, Partly, if we're all being real honest with each other, I started writing her letters because my memory is so abysmal. It was like, the only way that I'm going to remember your childhood is if I write this stuff down. And if I'm writing it down in some form that's public, I'll be required to write it in a, in a decent way, right? In complete sentences and with a maybe an overarching thought that comes through it um, instead of just trying to journal, which I'm really bad at and generally just don't do. So there's a level of putting it out there that holds me accountable to put those memories down and then have them. Um, have them for us later and and we you know every year then I take the pictures that I post with it and put them in a little shutterfly book and give them to family members which everybody likes and is a nice way to um, preserve you know just a nice photo album kind of way to preserve memories but I also wanted especially when she was little and I've realized more and more as she's gotten older even that that there's a real that it's there's a real hesitation um, among a lot of folks and even folks in Wyoming about taking kids, particularly young kids, outside a lot and and outside like camping and hunting and things like that. That it it seems like a hassle and it seems like a lot of work and there's all these unknowns. And so I thought by putting these things out there with showing some of the struggles, like not making it seem like it's a walk in the park, but also showing that it's just it's just not that hard or that complicated. Um, that that might maybe inspire someone else to think, okay, maybe I'm going to figure out how to, to do this camping business with my kids and make it happen. So I figured if, um, if I could show that it's, that it's just not that hard 
um, that maybe that would get some other folks outside. Um, and if I'll continue them, I don't have any idea. Part of it, and that's, I mean, this is a conversation for another time, but social media and kids and, and how much of that do you share, especially as they get older? I don't, at some point it's going to be up to her, right? If she looks at me as a 12 year old and says, mom, knock it off, <laughs> then I'll, then I'll stop. So we'll have to see. Yeah. Well, I can tell you it's been an inspiration to me with, with my son, Noah, who's, who's a year and a half, you know, a year and a half old. And I'd already met you and started reading your posts uh, like that when he was born. And I think for my confidence in taking him hiking and taking him fishing with me, I haven't taken him camping yet, but I think um, at least for me, the first thing I got for him was the backpack carrier kind of inspired nice. by your posts thinking as soon as we were expecting him that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to do what Chris, awesome. Christine does. Maybe not write about um, it in the same way, but I'm going to have those experiences. And I think reading your posts about that to your daughter were, were a big inspiration for giving me the confidence as a first time parent that, that that was a doable thing. Thank you. That's, that's awesome to hear. And it, and it is, it's just not as it, a friend of mine talked about this some years ago that I think it's easy for parents also to say your life doesn't change at all when you have kids. And, um, Aaron, you can, with older kids, you can chime in on that. Your life changes for sure. But it also, you also still really can do most of the things. It's just, it's just different. Um, and so it's not this fundamental changing of your entire life. I mean, I guess if you're a hardcore mountaineer, you're not going to probably take your two year old, you know, up Everest with you, but a lot of what we do and um, probably the folks listening do is really doable with kids. Yeah. I think the only thing that really changed for us was backpacking. We didn't backpack and particularly, uh, in those middle years, you know, where they couldn't really carry anything, but we would have to carry it for them. So it would, it would right. double our load, but they, they weren't. And then, and then maybe they weren't going to, you know, like those three or four or five year old, you know, maybe they were going to get tired and not want to hike anymore. Plus you've got all their extra crap, so you can't carry them. That was, so we, we did a ton of rafting actually and multi-day mm. raft trips. In fact, you know, both of my kids were on a multi-day raft trip before they were two weeks old. We actually thought it was oh. easy and fun. And, you know, with rafting, you can bring everything, you know, you just load it up. And so, you know, when they were really little, they were easy to manage because you could just set them down. They wouldn't go anywhere, you know, and, <laughs> or carry them in the backpack. You know, it was when they started being toddlers and they'd run around. You'd have to really keep an eye on them and that kind of thing. But they grew up on the boat and uh, that's to this day, they still love it. We still do several multi-day rafting trips and. That's kind of our family tradition, I suppose, mostly. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, the Outdoor Riders Association work that you're doing, kind of what the goals are, what it looks like for COVID, some of the initiatives you all are working on. You know, give our listeners a little bit of insight on kind of the, the maybe not the origin, but, you know, what are the, what's the chief aim of the Outdoor Riders as, a, as an organization and as a group? Um, well, that's a, um, that's a big ask for, um, someone who's just a, a member here, but, um, but I don't, I guess I can speak, um, for myself that I feel like the, the biggest, I mean, the biggest goal of the Outdoor Writers Association is to, um, connect 
is to help connect people with the outdoors, help support outdoor communicators and help mentor the next generation and bring awareness to um, outdoor recreation conservation issues in the country. And I think that we're in a really unique position in that um, it was hundreds of members that are spread out every corner of um, every corner of the country. And they all are, are pretty respected voices in their area and they have the ability to really make a difference and to help inform, um, help inform people of important outdoor natural resource issues that are going on in their area. And then also help inspire people to get outside and try new things and, and experience the outdoors in, in a way that will then help them care more about these issues that come up. So, um, I think it's, it's an organization that I feel very strongly about, um, which I wouldn't be committing this much of my life to in a volunteer way if I didn't, but, um, but it is, I think it has the capacity to do a lot of good and, and, and has done a lot of good over the, it's, you know, almost century of existence. Um, and we just recently started and we actually have our first, um, full board meeting and training with her tomorrow, but we recently hired, uh, Dr. Mamie Parker, um, who's a pretty incredible, woman is a professional facilitator and um she worked for the was the um first um I think first African American to lead the a regional fish and wildlife service office and has won I couldn't even begin to say the number of national awards for all of her work and she's just an inspiration. Um and she's working with the board to help our um to help our board and then to help our members and our organization better understand the importance of um, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the outdoors, and um, and then help communicate that to our audiences as we go home, and and also maybe help us move more toward being able to support um, uh, marginalized groups and and communicators, outdoor communicators that come from marginalized communities. So I think that um, I think that we're uniquely placed to to maybe make a, a difference in this. Um, in this sphere, which I'm excited about and, um, and really look forward to, to figuring out what we can learn from her and walking this journey together. And, um, she's also on the national wildlife Federation board of directors. Right. Um, I, actually, and I, I joined that committee as well. Um, I think we're, we're at a point where we're learning a lot. I don't, I don't think we're at a point where we're, um, making any, any grand statements or anything right now. But no. I think as a, as a group, I think we're all learning a lot from her and from each other and trying to up kind of our game in, in being able to recruit diverse uh, people to, to the outdoors. Um, I think what, what I really dig about OA too is that we cover a lot of different activities in the outdoors. It's hunting and fishing, but it's not just hunting and fishing. Um, it seems right. like we have a lot of members who cover other types of outdoor recreation that gives um, us as a group maybe a, a, a wider reach of ways to introduce people to the outdoors. For sure. No, I mean, it, it covers the gambit of of everything from, you know, kite surfing and backpacking and mountain biking and pack rafting um, all the way through bird watching and then really traditional hunting and fishing. And I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of members that are like me that sort of cover it all and, and dabble in all of it. And then others that 
um, work specifically in, in each area. And that makes for a really unique um, blend of expertise and interests and, and really engaging conferences then when everybody gets together and can tell stories from their various exploits over the year. Christine, do you think, you know, conservation has, you know, boiled to the top more in all of those pursuits or, you know, you think it's the same and we just have a hyper microscope on it that, that we're looking through now, you know, talk, talk about how conservation has always been, you know, an underlying theme within, within the professional outdoor riders. Um, I mean, that's, I wish there was somebody that had, we have so many members that have been around for 35, 40 years that have been members that could probably give a better answer to that realistically looking at a historical look. But I mean, it's in our mission. OWA's mission includes conservation. So that's clearly a part of the organization and has been, you know, since its inception. Um, but, and I don't know if, I don't know if awareness, I don't know if awareness is greater now than it has been, um, in the past, but I do think a lot of these issues, um, a lot of conservation issues and, um, you know, from chronic wasting disease and climate change is it is a huge one that you just can't avoid doing when you're out doing any of these things there, they're there, right? I mean, it was 18 degrees here and snowed four inches in early September. <laughs> um, wildfires are everywhere. You can't breathe in the West without, without wildfire smoke. And, so I think that if you're going to be outside enjoying the outdoors, conservation is just is there. And um, and I don't I, I don't know. What do you guys do? You guys feel like it is um, more or less prevalent now than it once was? I think I see more focus on it. Maybe when I was younger, I didn't pay as much attention to it. You know, when I think about reading like outdoor life when I was in my early 20s, I don't know if I paid attention as much to the conservation stories that were in it. I was looking for, you know, being a beginner, beginner hunter, how do I kill a buck, right? And maybe now, of course, working for a conservation organization, I'm hyper aware of every every article and also seeing to looking to see if they use one of our quotes or not. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just paying more attention to it. But I, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to tell if it's just our perspective of where we work and the field we're involved in, or if it's a bigger focus of, of the industry itself. I guess I would say, I think the, the access to media, social media and so on just, you know, allows more people to, to talk, uh, you know, there's good and bad to it. I, I mean, I think if I, if I had my magic wand, I'd throw it off the, throw it off the planet and forget we ever had it, but that's just my personal thing. But I guess maybe a different way to ask it, Christine, is are you seeing from your, from your clients, we'll call them, you know, the folks you write for a lot, are, is there a more appetite for conservation themed or a connection to conservation when writing about, you know, the various subjects you cover? I do. I do think that there's certainly an appetite for conservation. And um, I mean, partly I write for, groups that you know Toronto Limited or the Nature Conservancy so those are obviously groups that organizations that are conservation focused but even in the in the um, publications that I work for that that aren't connected to an organization there certainly is there is a lot of an appetite there is a lot of appetite for um, for con more conservation based stories and and this and I said it once to an editor that it's um, that it's sort of like 
you're writing the equivalent of a popsicle with like a little bit of spinach mixed into it. And people can't necessarily tell that they're eating spinach because it's pretty delicious popsicle, (laughs) but like, Oh, there's some spinach getting me some vitamins. Um, And I think that that's that in our world is a little bit is, is where I try to hang out is in that here's a really entertaining story. Also, these are issues you should be thinking about because this really cool stuff I'm writing about might not be around forever if we don't care about it. Um, and so that I think that's sort of that sweet spot of not just creating despair um, because sometimes things can feel overwhelming, um, but showing that there's still incredible beauty and wonder and and fun and excitement out there, but, but we've got to care about it. And I think that, I think that editors like that and, and like that are more interested in that depth while also wanting 10 ways to shoot a bigger buck. So, I mean, there's list, listicles are always going to be a thing, but I do think in features, people like having those slightly more complex stories. Well, and that, and that helps you tell a more complete you. story of the, of the fun aspect of hunting and fishing that you're going out and doing too. Um, I know I always, get more more play i guess if i'm working a non-lead piece into you know how how to catch a fish versus hey you just ought to not use lead you know but but sure. hey by the way i use non-lead sinkers you know something like that right i may steal the popsicle with spinach analogy from yeah. christine i think in yeah. in hunting and angling particularly you know it's a craft as opposed to, you know, I mean, it, mountain biking is a craft too, if you do it to a high level or, you know, but lots of hunters and anglers, right? They're always trying to improve and find different techniques and build their craft. And so when you add in that other stuff, oftentimes they're like, hey, you know, I'm here because it's more like a, you know, I, I want to be thinking about hunting fishing. I don't want to think about all the other things. And particularly, I've noticed during hunting season, people don't like to think about that. You know, it's like the time to go you know, get, get jazzed up and think about where I could go or what, what technique I could be using. But I think it's, that's a good analogy. And it's, um, I think we need to reverse that trend though, right? We need to make the, we need to make the conservation, the popsicle. And we, I I think the community at large hasn't maybe done a good enough job of making it fun. Right. I mean, we're starting to get there, but it's depressing for one, a lot of it is. And then second, you know, it's so thick that if you spend a lot of time having fun, you get off topic and, you, you know, you might not get where you're trying to go. But I think it's incumbent upon us to to make it, uh, you know, part of it. And when I see kids, they actually know more than you think. This All this information, I mean, I can't believe sometimes the things my kids come up with that, you know, there's this problem. It might not even be in the United States. It might be over here and they'll have really incredible detail about it. And, you know, the access to information, I think, is helpful in that way and you know writing about it telling telling good stories we we definitely find that the better the better the storyteller the better the writer the more you know eyes those pieces get i was going to ask you too i think you kind of started touching on it but through that lens what do you think you know it is the most maybe i'll say pervasive issues right now that are that are there they're the elephant in the room that are out there in our outdoor world that, you know, are, are coming through over and over again in, in your work that you're seeing? I mean, climate change is going to be your biggest, right? I don't know that um, that is, it's, it's such an overarching issue that's going to, that's going to impact everything. 
in everything that everybody cares about and touches. And so I think that certainly is, um, is the biggest issue and you can tie it to anything. I mean, the harmful algae blooms getting worse in the summer and warming temperatures for trout in the summer, and then wildfires getting worse, beetle outbreaks that are worse. There's a lot of, um, it's hard. I think it would, it's, it's hard to think about a lot of the stuff that we like to do and not see how it ties to climate change and will be impacted by that. Um, and then, and then after that, as we talked about before, but chronic wasting disease is probably, is probably a pretty big one. And then I guess the third, um, and this is to some degree bigger than chronic wasting disease, but invasive species, um, is the other just really big, um, issue that I end up writing about a lot in different ways. I know you guys, um, talk about a lot too, that, you know, especially out West cheatgrass and then Medusa head and Bentonata and, um, and then all the, all the different different fish that are getting re, you know introduced places illegally introduced and um, so I would say that climate change invasive species um, are probably the two biggest ones. And those those work together too. There was actually a, sure. a study put out just a few months ago about how climate change will increase the food availability for Asian carp in the Great Lakes if they get oh. in. So that's how climate change is going to make invasive species worse. When they get, you know, if, if they get in, of course, we're not going to let them in, but, you know, if they were, that would make it worse. And it's interesting how climate change kind of becomes like that. Uh, remember that old uh, BASF commercial from the 80s? You used to say at BASF, we don't make the things you make, we make the things you make better. Climate change is kind of like that in reverse, right? It's like, it doesn't cause all of our problems, but it makes all it of the makes them problems worse. worse. Yeah. 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 That's it, probably, that's pretty fair. It's an interesting time to be thinking about that. I mean, I'm sitting here, you know, at 7,200 feet at my house. It was 90 degrees on Monday. Today it's 30. We got a foot of snow last night. Uh, you know, and a lot of climate science will tell you, you may not get more or less precipitation or whatever. You're going to have extreme events. And from 90 to a foot of snow in a day is pretty extreme. You know, at the same time, we've got a we've got a fire in Colorado that that went from thirty thousand acres on Saturday morning to over a hundred thousand acres right now. Um, and then my wife, it's interesting, was reflecting last night. A year ago, yesterday, when the snowstorm hit, we were evacuated from our house from a wildfire um, from a completely dry, crazy fall, which this was until yesterday when it started snowing. So a lot of extreme events, a lot of kooky stuff, you know, where, you know, our leaves didn't even start turning yellow. I mean, it was, it was summer until yesterday. And now, you know, all the, all the leaves are on the trees, but dead, all the flowers are dead. Everything's dead. Um, and you know, you think about what, what does that mean too, for, for the critters out there? You know, like they didn't get that transition period. They didn't, it's all of a sudden a whole different mode and it's going to warm up again. And I, I don't know how that'll work with all the vegetation, but, just, just you know, enough of that stuff is really becoming obvious to anyone who's paying attention. We're actually going to do a, a five-part series, kind of NPR style, um, hunters and anglers from around the country, chronicling kind of what it's looking like. We'll mix in some of the science and some of the trends we're seeing in those particular areas, and then their personal story of how they've seen the changes and, and how it's affecting their hunting and angling, you know, pursuits. So look for that in the near future. Cool. I also think one of the things, you know, when it comes to something like invasive species that, um, 
that I think people can make a bigger difference or, or not make a bad difference, um, but can make a bigger difference by just increasing their awareness, right? So like making sure that your waders and boots are cleaned off properly when you're going between waters and knocking off, you know, knocking off your boots when you get back from a hike so that when you go somewhere else, you don't have cheat grass stuck to them or we thought about this even this summer um, or camping somewhere spent most of because of COVID um, instead of driving to Vermont and then doing a bunch of camping and um, on the east part, on the uh, eastern part of the U.S., um, we just stayed in Wyoming um, and did a lot of camping here. And one of the areas where we put up our tent had a lot of cheatgrass around it. And um, as I was putting the tent away, it occurred to me that there was probably a fair bit of cheatgrass that had come inside. And so then trying to be better about shaking everything out really good where you are um, so that you're not taking it and then just popping it up somewhere else in the mountains and not thinking about it. And, and there are the seeds. So I think that a lot of these issues can feel so big and so overwhelming that it's it, it's easy to throw up our hands and say, there's just it's just there's just nothing I can do. I just can't I just can't fix this. Um and the same applies to diversity and in, in, in the outdoors too. And and um, I think there's if we can focus more on you know eating an elephant one bite at a time instead of trying to eat the whole thing in a sitting, um, that that we each can make a difference in these in these small ways, or again not make a situation worse just by being a little bit more aware. All these a lot of these fires, more fires are being started by humans than ever before, and it's because we're not being careful with our campfires or cigarette butts or exploding targets or, you know, trailer hitches, dragging chains, um, and all that stuff. That's not, that's not hard. It's just increasing awareness, which is, which is where we all come into. And right. That's our charge is to, to help create more awareness among people so that everybody just has that in their head. I should wash my waders off. I should wash my boots off. And, not spread zebra and quagga mussels places or any of these other little tiny hitchhikers. Um, so that would be, I think that's, if there was one thing that I wanted people to, you know, or would um, encourage people to think about more are the ways that, that they can improve the outdoors in these small, these small increments um, that are manageable to them. You know, picking up garbage. Miriam and I do a lot of just picking up random garbage when we're out and about. And though during COVID has made it, more uncomfortable um, to be picking up random people's garbage, but um, but you know, just if you're in a campground and there's stuff, pick it up and throw it away, um, and leave it just like a little bit nicer. So that that would be um, that would probably be something that I would charge people to think about more. Wise words. Uh, I sh I would be remiss too if I didn't ask you if you have any Wyoming specific issues that you're thinking about right now or. Or covering or just paying attention to I think Wyoming is obviously you know uh, it has kind of an iconic place in the hearts and minds of America right when people think about Wyoming they think about the Wild West you know you and I know that there's plenty of <laughs> the modern stuff we're all used to in Wyoming but it does have a you know kind of that romanticized feel to it in a lot of places the sage sea some other things do you have anything specific that you're thinking sure. about in Wyoming that you want to tell us about? Um, I mean, there's probably a handful of things that I could just pepper out for you. One is, as you mentioned, sagebrush, but um, just how incredibly important our sagebrush ecosystems are. 
and you know, people drive through, it just looks like it's just a big, massive, pale green, maybe brown, dead stuff. Um, and that there's really so much life out there that's all tied to it's tied to each other. And there's been a lot of focus on sage grouse, which is important because we have the bulk of the sage grouse habitat left. And um, and there's such an there's such an iconic species for being a, a canary in the coal mine, if you will, and and sort of letting us know when we're pushing the sage grouse the sagebrush ecosystem to a place that it maybe can't come back from. Um, so that's an important one in Wyoming, I think. Uh, feed grounds are also are we we have elk feed grounds in Wyoming and that's um, that's a pretty controversial topic and one that's been interesting to me um, especially as chronic wasting disease gets closer and what impact that could have and um, another really big one in Wyoming is migrations just because Wyoming is lucky enough to still have some of the last remaining just epic big game migrations in North America and you know, we have mule deer that are migrating 150, 200 miles every year, same spot to same spot, which is crazy. And these big pronghorn migrations. And so um, just as those, um, as humans try to figure out where their place is and, and our place in terms of development and oil and gas development, which our economy is, Wyoming's economy is based on oil, gas and coal. And there's a real, there's a real conflict there. Um, so trying to figure out how to balance these incredible natural resources that we still have because we still have so few people and we have made, we have made conservation a priority off and on in our history. And so then trying to balance the needs of the half a million or so people that live in Wyoming and, and the needs of the fish and wildlife that live here. Um, and migrations is a, is a big part of that. So those are, those are probably some of the top issues right now that that i think of thank you that's a that's a good rundown those issues are they're beyond wyoming too you know in a lot of ways i mean the the, the west is mm -hmm. changing so fast and it's it's gentrifying it's it's there's wildfire there's so many things that like i said before though i think wyoming is kind of an epicenter to a lot of that right it's you, you've got billionaires yeah. replacing millionaires <laughs> In Wyoming, yep. you've got you know uh, all the all the forest issues plus all the the sage prairie issues. Um, there, there's so much going on there. And I always I always like to ask Wyomingites what they're thinking about because it's there's so many things there that have been here for a long time. They seem to go away, but they're actually they're actually still all there and, and need our help and need our concentration. So appreciate that. Um, I think we can wrap up, Christina. I just really appreciate, you know, your acumen, your excellence in your craft, talking to you, your interesting storyteller. I really appreciated, you. you know, your time and I love reading your pieces. Um, I love the Wyoming connection. I uh, just couldn't be happier that you chose to spend a little time with us and share your wisdom. Um, and we hope to connect with you more in the future and keep spreading the good word that you're putting out there. And I, well, the, the one thing we like to do is uh, leave people with the chance to, to give us any parting shots if they would like. And so we'll, we'll do that real quick. Anything, anything you want to leave our listeners with? I don't, I mean, I'll, I'll say thank you to you guys first for giving me a chance to talk. And, and um, I think not to, to reiterate what I said before, but get outside and enjoy yourself and then think about how you want, what you're enjoying to still be there for your kids and for your grandkids. 
but don't forget to enjoy yourself. Thank you, Christine. That's, that's great. Hopefully we'll be able to see you in person in Vermont this year or next year, I guess. Um, but if not, I'll see you on the zoom calls, uh, soon. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us. We are NWF Outdoors.